This is Chapter Four of Mark Twain: His Life and Work, a Biographical Sketch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain: His Life and Work, a Biographical Sketch, Chapter Four, One of the Innocents, read by John Greenman. During the winter months of 1866-67, a coterie of bright journalists eked out a miserable existence in San Francisco prominent among the bohemians who lunched together at the miners restaurant were charles warren stoddard f bret hart charles h webb prentice mulford and mark twain none of these gentlemen were quite so poor and needy as sam clemens who on several occasions ventured upon the dangerous borderland of starvation one day a comedian from a local theatre approached mark on the street see here clemens said he I need a half-dozen good jokes. Get em up, and I'll give you five dollars." "'Sorry, old man,' answered Mark, thoughtfully, "'but I'm afraid the scheme won't work.' "'Why not?' "'Well, <laughs> the fact is, I'm so damned poor. If I was found with five dollars on my person, people would say I stole them on the other hand if you got off any decent jokes people would say you stole them too in january eighteen sixty seven stoddard and mulford gave several successful public entertainments in san francisco and fired with ambition mark twain started forth upon a lecture tour through the smaller cities of california and nevada in those days most any sort of an entertainment brought out a crowd and when it was announced one day in Carson City that Mark was to deliver a lecture for the benefit of something or other at the Episcopal Church, it was generally understood that the house would be crowded. "'Well, the night arrived,' writes a friend who was present. Mark ascended the steps into the pulpit about eight o'clock, there being a whole lot of the boys and young women, friends of his, as well as a good many old people in front.' Mark made a very polite bow, and then unfolded a gigantic roll of brown paper. People thought at first it was a map, but it turned out to be his lecture, written on great sheets of grocer's brown paper, with an ordinary grocer's marking brush. After his bow, he turned his back around to the audience, and craned his head up to the lamp, and thus read from the big sheets as though it would be impossible for him to see any other way. The lecture was on the future of Nevada, and was the funniest thing I ever heard. He prophesied the great era of prosperity that was before us, and sought to encourage us residents of the sagebrush region by foretelling what appeared to be Golconda-like tales of impossible mineral discoveries right on the heels of it however came the remarkable discoveries of virginia city and then we thought he wasn't so far off in his humorous productions many a time have i thought of that lecture of mark twain it ought to have been published i have read all his books and i never saw anything in any of them better than this for several months mr clemens continued this platform experience with profit the while writing interesting letters to the eastern newspapers and contributing sketches to the periodicals in march eighteen sixty seven 
he published his first book, The Jumping Frog of Calaveras, a collection of his best fugitive sketches, and this immediately aroused public attention, not only in America, but also in England. Soon after, he sailed for New York by way of Panama, and upon arriving there, having found that his little volume was well received, arranged for an English edition, which was published by Mrs. Routledge and Sons of London. From New York, Mark proceeded to Washington, where he endeavored to earn his living by writing letters to the San Francisco Alta and delivering a lecture or two. His lecture experience in Washington was brief, but interesting, and he tells about it in his inimical way as follows. Well, now, I'll have to tell you something about that lecture. It was a little the hardest and roughest experience I ever underwent in my whole career as a lecturer. Now, I had not been in Washington more than a day or two before a friend of mine came to my room at the hotel early one morning, wakened me out of a sound sleep, and nearly stunned me by asking if I was aware of the fact that I was to deliver a lecture at Lincoln Hall that evening. I told him no, and that he must be crazy to get out of bed at such an unseemly hour to ask such a foolish question. But he soon assured me that he was perfectly sane by showing me the morning papers, which all announced that Mark Twain was to lecture that evening, and that his subject would be the Sandwich Islands. To say that I was surprised would be putting it mildly. I was mad, for I thought someone had put a game on me. Well, on careful inquiry, I learned that an old theatrical friend of mine thought he would do me a favor, so he made all the necessary arrangements for me to lecture, with the exception of the slight circumstance that he neglected to inform me of any of his intentions. He rented Lincoln Hall, billed the town, and sent the newspaper's advertisements and notices about the coming lecture. And the worst of it was he had done all his work thoroughly. After learning this I was in a dilemma. I had never prepared any lecture on the Sandwich Islands. What was I to do? I could not back out by telling the people that I was unprepared. No, that, that was out of the question, because the people wouldn't believe it. The billing of the town had been too well done for that. So there was only one thing left for me to do, and that was to lock myself in my room and write that lecture between the breakfast hour and half-past seven that evening. Well, I did it and was on hand at the advertised hour, facing one of the biggest audiences I ever addressed. I did not use my manuscript, but in those days I always had my lecture in writing, 
and kept it on the reading-stand at one end of the place where I stood on the platform. I was very good at memorizing, and rarely had any trouble in speaking without notes. But the very fact that I had my manuscript near at hand where I could readily turn to it without having to undergo the mortification of pulling it from my pocket gave me courage and kept me from making awkward pauses. But the writing of that Sandwich Island lecture in one day was the toughest job ever put to me. One afternoon, while sitting in his dingy little room smoking his cob pipe, Mark became deeply interested in reading about the contemplated trip of the steamship Quaker City to Europe and the Holy Land, and saw the chance of his life. He wrote to General John McComb, one of the proprietors of the San Francisco Daily Alta California, asking for an advance of $1,200 in gold, proposing to pay it in letters at $15 apiece. It was no small request to make of a San Francisco newspaper in the sixties, but McComb induced his partners to grant the request. That was how Mark Twain formed one of the party who sailed in the steamship Quaker City, Captain Duncan, for an extended excursion to Palestine and the Holy Land. This voyage to the different seaports of southern Europe and the Orient gave him an opportunity of which he made abundant use. The excursion was a very exclusive sort of affair, and Captain Duncan is authority for the statement that Clemens had represented himself when he applied for passage on the Quaker City as a Baptist minister in ill health from San Francisco. Clemens had accompanied the excursion party solely as a newspaper correspondent. He fell in with a crowd of good, respectable bourgeois and bourgeoises, and if the exaggerated narrative of the Innocents Abroad, published two years later, is to be relied upon, he certainly must have kept his pious-minded fellow voyagers in a constant state of nervous excitement. The story of that eventful tour has been well told in Innocents Abroad. He set out to explore the Holy Land and Egypt, stopping, by the way, at Athens. His description of the city at night is one of the most vivid vignettes on record. The full moon was riding high in the heavens now. We sauntered carelessly and unthinkingly to the edge of the lofty battlements of the citadel and looked down. A vision, and such a vision, Athens by moonlight. It lay in the level plain right under our feet, all spread abroad, like a picture, and we looked upon it as we might be looking at it from a balloon. We saw no semblance of a street, but every house, every window, every clinging vine, every projection were marked as clearly as it were at noonday. And yet there was no glare, no glitter, nothing harsh or repulsive. The harshest city was flooded with the yellowest light that ever streamed from the moon, and seemed like some living creature wrapped in peaceful slumber. On its further side was a little temple, whose delicate pillars and 
ornate front glowed with a rich luster that chained the eye like a spell and nearer by the palace of the king reared its creamy walls out of the mist of a great garden of shrubbery that was flecked all over with a random shower of amber lights a spray of golden sparks that lost their brightness in the glory of the moon and glinted softly upon the sea of dark foliage like the pallid star of the milky way overhead the stately columns majestic still in their ruin underfoot the dreaming city in the distance the silver sea the picture needed nothing it was perfect equally realistic vivid and interesting were his sketches of scenes and incidents in palestine and egypt of his experience with a camel in syria he wrote as follows in a vein of the richest humor in syria at the headwaters of the jordan a camel took charge of my overcoat while the tents were being pitched and examined it with a critical eye all over with as much interest as if he had an idea of getting one made like it and then after he was done figuring on it as an article of apparel he began to contemplate it as an article of diet he put his foot on it and lifted one of the sleeves out with his teeth and chewed and chewed at it gradually taking it in and all the while opening and closing his eyes in a kind of religious ecstasy as if he had never tasted anything so good as an overcoat before in his life then he smacked his lips once or twice and reached after the other sleeve next he tried the velvet collar and smiled a smile of such contentment that it was plain to see that he regarded that as the daintiest thing about an overcoat the tails went next along with some percussion caps and cough candy and some fig paste from constantinople and then my newspaper correspondence dropped out and he took a chance in that manuscript letters written from the home papers but he was treading on dangerous ground now he began to come across solid wisdom in those documents that was weighty on his stomach and occasionally he would take a joke that would shake him up till it loosened his teeth it was getting to be perilous times with him but he held his grip with good courage and hopefully till at last he began to stumble on statements that not even a camel could swallow with impunity he began to gag and gasp and his eyes to stand out and his forelegs to spread and in about a quarter of a minute he fell over as stiff as a carpenter's workbench and died a death of indescribable agony i went and pulled the manuscript out of his mouth and found that the sensitive creature had choked to death on one of the 
mildest and gentlest statements of fact that i ever laid before a trusting public the trip of the quaker city was not designed as a lengthy tour of europe but merely a midsummer excursion of a few months brief as was the voyage however mark twain made the most of it and gathered the material not only enough in quantity to produce a large volume but enough in quality to give him everlasting fame returning to new york he proceeded to washington where he commenced a new career as the special correspondent of newspapers in san francisco chicago and elsewhere end of chapter three of mark twain his life and work a biographical sketch read by john greenman